Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. So a marketing professor and a comic walk into Stanford Business School and teach a popular class. It's called Humor, Serious Business. Jennifer Ocker and Naomi Bogdanis say their mission is to make sure that the next generation of leaders don't launch into the world, quote, without a healthy dose of humanity, humility, and intellectual perspective that only humor can bring. We'll talk to them about their new book, Humor Seriously, how we can bring much-needed humor into our work and lives, especially now. We'll get the conversation started right after this news. Welcome to this morning's forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Jennifer Ocker and Naomi Bogdana say we need more human connection in the workplace, especially in a time when in-person meetings have been replaced by Zoom. Stanford marketing professor Jennifer Ocker and comic and Stanford lecturer Naomi Bogdana should join us now to talk about how to bring more laughs to work and life and their new book, Humor Seriously, which grew out of a class they teach at Stanford Business School. And welcome to both of you. Good to have you both with us. Thank, Thank you so you. much. I guess, uh, let me begin, Professor Acker, with you, only because we go alphabetical here. And uh, I'm, I'm just wondering about this whole notion of humor as a secret weapon, as a transformative weapon. I mean, that's really at the heart of your book, uh, along with many other things that are both funny and well-researched. Uh, but there's a lot of claim here, and the research backs it up. Humor can do great things in terms of, well, cementing bonds and creating better creativity and resilience, all those kinds of things that we want, both at home and at work. Yeah. So, Michael, first of all, it is such a pleasure to be with you here today, especially since, and we are being very sincere, one of our favorite books is yours. Um, so the ability for you to be able to interview with us is um, a complete pleasure. So what do we mean by um, it's an under leveraged, underappreciated asset or secret weapon, so to speak, at work? Um, the reality is, especially right now, we can't afford to have humorless businesses. Um, you know, everyone's got some level of fear, distress, uh, depression, mental health has gone on the decline. And it's, it's been um, a concern even before the global pandemic, but the global pandemic has certainly accelerated all of these things. Um, studies show that adults fall off a humor cliff uh, around age 23. Um, so this is research done by Gallup. 
uh, which asks people a very simple question, you know, did you smile or laugh yesterday? Um, and, you know, when people, you know, are 16, 18, 20, the answer is yes. And all of a sudden around 20, 23, right when they go to work, the answer becomes no. And it doesn't, it doesn't become yes again until 70 or 80, unless they read your book, Michael, and then it increases um, much earlier. Um, but yet we, 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 there's research to show that humor or even just having a sense of humor, not necessarily being funny, increases how much people respect you, how much people admire you, and even how much money you make. So we have to invest in this. Yeah, I can think of all those listeners at age 23 who are suddenly thinking, boy, does this mean I'm not going to be able to laugh much anymore uh, until I'm older? And uh, yet the fact of the matter is that um, there are also some very funny stories. Thank you for the nice remarks about my book, but also some humor in your book. And uh, we talk about humor kind of as a muscle. It, it needs to be developed. A lot of people think it's innate, don't they, Naomi? Yeah, they do. I mean, we think of humor as a sense of humor, or at least being funny as something that we either have or we don't. And you're exactly right that what we find is when people make these small behavioral shifts, when they think about humor as a muscle that they flex, they report having more of it in their life. And so for example, one thing that we do with our students at, um, at Stanford is we have them do a humor audit, where Every day for a week, they write down all of the moments where they laughed and all of the moments where they made someone else laugh. And something pretty remarkable happens over the course of a week. So on day one, they basically report uh, they're not laughing all that much. One of our favorite quotes from a student was, on Tuesday, I did not laugh, not once. Who knew a class about humor could be so depressing? <clears throat> and uh, But what happens is that by day seven, our students report having more laughter and more joy in their lives. And, it, and this gets um, amplified by the end of the course, by the end of, of week 10, where they say, I'm laughing a lot more, I have more joy in my life, and I feel like I'm a lot funnier. And part of this, of course, is we take them through these techniques from comedians, we give them all these tools, but a big part of it is just choosing to look for joy and humor in our day-to-day. -day. So we talk with our students about what does it look like to navigate your life on the precipice of a smile? And that's really what we're trying to train. We're trying to train our brains um, to be primed for laughter because of, of course we know psychologically that um, our brains are hardwired to find what we set out to look for. Yeah, and I wanna to talk to you about that hardwiring and neuroscience. Uh, I was reminded of, sorry, a little bit of a morbid turn, but I always think about that line of Bertolt Brecht that uh, the man who laughs, and you could say the man or woman who laughs, has not yet been told the terrible news. There's a kind of necessity of a certain attitude uh, here. I mean, humor can charm, it can disarm, it can help us remember and reduce stress, all of those things that you highlight in your book, but at the same time, you have to have a certain attitude, don't you? Can I go to you on this, Jennifer? Absolutely. Um, one of our favorite quotes actually is by Viktor Frankl, who says, it's well known that humor more than anything else in the human makeup can afford an aloofness and an ability to rise above any situation, even if it's just for a few seconds. So that idea of an attitude, um, yeah, is, is definitely partly partly correct. Um, what's interesting with our students is that we go into the psychology of it, but we really underscore the idea that it's not just psychology or an attitude, it's actually physiological. 
Um, there is neurochemistry that shows that when we laugh together, um, our brains change. So what happens is when you laugh together uh, with someone else or, you know, even by yourself, you have um, a cocktail of hormones that are released. Uh, you have increased levels of dopamine. Uh, so that's kind of like a runner's high. You have decreased levels of cortisol, which makes us feel a little bit calmer. And then you also have increased levels of oxytocin, which is the same hormone that's released during childbirth or um, sex. So, um, so basically what's happening is that you have uh, essentially the benefits of exercise, the benefits of meditation and the benefits of sex all wrapped up into one. It's very efficient. Well, what um, a package. It's, <laughs> yes, it's a great package. Yeah. Five minutes of laughing together, um, you know, outperform pretty much any singular one of those activities. It's definitely a multiplier. And it's contagious. I mean, laughter is contagious. And, and let's not forget when we're talking about this cocktail of uh, things in the brain, we've got dopamine and we've got uh, endorphins and less uh, epipenephrine. Uh, I mean, it's uh, it's really quite a picture you draw here. And it's also a picture, I mean, go back to you, Naomi Bogdanis, uh, about um, what you call levity and gravity. And I want to get at that so mm -hmm. listeners can understand the concept. It's important. We tend to see them in a dichotomous way, but you really talk about uh, sort of infusing them together, gravity and levity. Talk about that. Yeah, it's such an important thing to recognize, which is we hold this false dichotomy between gravity and levity. We think that if we take the mission of our work seriously, the presence of levity in some way betrays that mission, whether that mission is uh, a mission that your company is on, whether it's a mission that your family is on. And what we've found is there are profound benefits to weaving in a sense of humor and levity, especially to the things that we take most seriously in our lives, that if we don't take ourselves so seriously, um, it actually is, is makes us more effective in grappling with serious things. And this is actually, so we teach a course at the business school at Stanford called A New Type of Leader Anchored on Purpose Fueled by Humor. The entire thesis of which is that in order to be successful leaders, in order to be happy people in our lives, we need to recognize that if we hold these serious things too tightly, if, we, um, if we're too brittle about them, then we actually can sabotage ourselves in our ability to be successful. And if instead we're able to hold them lightly, if instead we're able to um, have levity, then we're better able to motivate other people to come along the mission with us. We're better able to build our own resilience and bounce back from failure more quickly. And we'll be more successful in accomplishing those big, heavy, grave missions that we have in our lives. Talking about how to bring humor into the workplace with Stanford marketing professor Jennifer Anker and comic and lecturer Naomi Bagdanis. Their new book is called Humor Seriously, which grew out of a class they teach at Stanford Business School. And I want to hear from you. You can tell us about a time perhaps when humor helped diffuse a situation or equalize a hierarchy at work, or how do you bring more laughs to work and to life? And give us a call now. I invite you to do that. Our toll-free number is available to you. It's 866-733-6786. Again, the number for your calls, 866-733-6786, or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email us, forum at kqed.org. And the two authors who are with us will be at the Commonwealth Club for a virtual event tonight at 6 p.m. And let me go back, Professor Ocker, to you. Um, there are a lot of people who say, well, I'm not funny. I, it's innate. You have to be naturally funny. But again, this idea that uh, you can sort of build up your muscular humor is something that you really take in the book seriously. 
Yeah. So um, one of the things that we um, try to, to cultivate in, in our students is a humor is having a sense of humor is not the same thing as being funny. And certainly the class itself and a lot of our research is not about trying to be funny. And the best way to do that is to actually give them a humor style questionnaire, which is the most fun quiz you will ever take. Uh, so, Michael, I don't know if you did this, but if you go to humorseriously.com, you can fill out this like a three or four minute quiz and find your humor style. And there's these four humor styles that we find in our research. Um, the first is a stand-up. So these people are bold and irreverent. They're unafraid to ruffle a few feathers for a laugh. So you might think of Amy Schumer or maybe even Richard Branson to some degree as a CEO. Um, and so these are typically the people that you think of when you think of you know, funny leader or you know, a comedian. But there's also the sweetheart. And they are earnest and understated. They use humor that lightens the mood. Um, so you might think of Jimmy Kimmel or Bowen Yang as a sweetheart. And then there's snipers. They are edgy, sarcastic, and nuanced. They are masters of the unexpected dig. So it's hard oftentimes to get them to laugh, but when you do, you feel great. Uh, and their use of humor is more pointed. It's not necessarily to lift others up or take others down per se, but it's to make a point. So you might, um, you might think of Michelle Wolf or Dennis O'Leary in this category. And then last, there's magnets. They're expressive and charismatic and easy to make laugh. They're kind of these more extroverted, affiliative types that um, might remind you of someone like Jimmy Fallon, for example. And what we find is that when you debunk this myth of you're either funny or you're not funny, but rather cultivate these humor styles so that people start to see um, humor within themselves, it starts to authentically come out to a greater degree. So Michael, what do you think you are? I think I'm maybe probably a little bit of all of those, but more a sniper maybe in many respects. Uh, and, and by the way, you think of sniper humor as laughing at rather than laughing with to some degree, and I'm afraid that that uh, doesn't necessarily encapsulate it, but uh, you know, I like to think I've got a little of each of those. Uh, we'll talk some more. We'll find out what you, our listeners, think about your humor style and also about what you think is funny and maybe get some thoughts from you. Some good cogent narratives about uh, what's been funny in the workplace or at home. Uh, people need levity now perhaps more than ever and you can join us toll free at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You're listening to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about how to bring humor into the workplace with Stanford marketing professor Jennifer Auker and comic and lecturer Naomi Bagdanis. And their new book is called Humor Seriously. It grew out of a class they teach at Stanford Business School. And they'll be at the Commonwealth Club this evening for a virtual event at 6 p.m. And Naomi, I was going to go to you uh, on a couple of stories that uh, appear in the book that I think are instructive and uh, also humorous. I know you do some stand-up and you've hung around with Second City people. In fact, there are a lot of Sarah Cooper and Seth Meyers, Norman Lear, a lot of names that come up in your book of people that you've had the, uh, I think, good fortune to learn from, both of you. 
But I wanted to find out about the story about the woman with the with the apple at the airport. And um, it's an instructive story and one we can learn a good deal from. Could you? Yeah, of course. So this was after a retreat that we had done at the second city in Chicago. And 10 of us researchers had flown in from around the country. We had um, met with Anne Libra and Kelly Leonard at the Second City. And we had done this immersion, this three-day immersion at the Second City. And on the way out of town from that immersion, we, you know, we parted ways at the airport. We all said goodbye. And then I went and did something completely unremarkable, which is that I went to buy an apple from an airport bodega. So I noticed that there was this huge stack of glossy, gorgeous apples in sort of a display case. And I wasn't sure if they were for sale. So I went to the front of the line and I, you know, waved down the the woman who was selling the apples or selling um, at the bodega. And I said, you know, pardon me, are those for sale? She looked at me and she said, yeah, they're for sale if you get in line. And so it was this moment of, oh, okay, great. Not in the best mood. So I went to the back of the line and, um, and I just sort of watched this woman for the next couple of minutes as I was waiting in line. And I noticed that she was, she seemed to be in a really bad mood. You know, I'm sure she had had something going on in her life um, that was just not great. And she was sort of snapping at every customer that came in front of her. So when I got to the front of the line, I, uh, I looked at the apples. And in that moment, instead of saying, can I please have an apple? I instead said, can I please have your favorite apple? And she paused and looked at me like I was crazy. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, there are a hundred apples there. I would love to buy whichever one is your favorite. And I gave her a little smile. And in that moment, everything shifted. She cracked a smile too. And she said, okay, yeah, I can, uh, I, I guess I can do that. So she reaches down, she grabs an apple. And then after a second, she's smiling to herself. And then she's smiling with me. She's digging through the apples. And then the couple people in line behind us are, are pointing out which apples they think are best. And finally, she grabs two apples. I mean, this was like a minute and a half of just digging through these apples laughing, right? She grabs these two la- apples and she says, okay, it's between these two. Which one do you want? And I said back to her, well, I don't know. It's your it's your favorite apple, so you have to decide. And she laughed and she said, "Okay, this one. I'm I'm positive it's this one." So she handed me the apple, and when I went to pay, uh, she said, "That's okay. I don't charge for my favorite apple." Yeah, it's and a lovely I, story. It's a charming yeah. story, but also, you know, you made her special in a way. So it's not only the humor; uh, mm. it, it has to do with. Uh, I'm sorry for deconstructing your story, but it it also has to do with just changing the mood, changing the whole attitude again. Uh, attitude comes to my mind. Uh, and, oh, decon- uh, deconstruct away. It's so <laughs> right, and it's it's um it's an act of generosity, right? Approaching someone with a smile and approaching them with a bit of warmth. Um, it's also a way of just signaling, "I see you," right? I recognizing the humanity in, in each other rather than treating, you know, these moments as as transactional. I like that because, in fact, you make the point uh, in the book that humor makes us more human. And it also takes away from aggression and from sourpusses and all those kinds of things. <laughs> there's, there's a, there are a lot of funny things in your book. And uh, last night I was talking, uh, sounds like a kind of humorous thing in itself, like a name drop or something. I happen to be talking to my literary agent and they just got a, she and her partner just got a new dog. 
And I mentioned the story that's in your book, uh, Jennifer Walker, about um, it's right out of Seinfeld. Seinfeld says dogs are, uh, I, I read it to them and I'll read it here. Dogs are the leaders of the planet. If you see two life forms, one of them's making a poop, the other one's carrying it for him, <laughs> who would you assume is in charge? Um, it's very funny, and again, it, it has to do with delivery, and Jerry Seinfeld's delivery is pretty inimitable. But what I was struck by in that story, and you kind of get into this, a lot of humor has to do with delivery, it has to do with timing, it has to do also with the appropriateness of the humor, but also incongruity. You don't expect necessarily to wind up with that kind of a ending to that story, that narrative. Yeah, I mean, that's the basic uh, basics of humor, right? It's truth and misdirection. So it's basically giving your brain sort of a surprise or a treat. Um, and so um, if you think of that, just again, the basics, it's not about being funny. It's just about being observant and noticing the truth. So that first principle at the heart of comedy is truth. Uh, we laugh out of recognition. So something resonates or it rings true with something inside of us. Um, so when Seinfeld writes that joke, you know, he's just simply noticing, you know, dogs pooping and people picking them up. But then the second thing, uh, what you're noting is this misdirection or surprise. And, um, and so again, it's basically, you know, taking something and, and subverting it. And then you just use, you know, these basic tools that, that comedians often use like contrast or exaggeration or the rule of three, where you end on something um, funny versus embedded in the, the first uh, couple of things that you're listing. So I'll, let me give you a couple of examples. Um, I was reading this Twitter account yesterday, um, Bird Facts. So uh, they tweeted this um, pandemic day number 25. I made bread, smiley face. Day 95, I sure do miss my friends. Day 310, the White House appears to be under control of a shirtless man in a Viking helmet. Day 330, Reddit's coordinated attack on Wall Street is going as planned. And so what you're doing there is you're you're basically setting up truth and then, you know, basically, you know, creating a surprise and then ending on on sort of the funny thing. And the simple the simple use of these, you know, tools are are something that um, we all have under our disposal. Oftentimes with our in our students, uh, with our students, we ask them to simply at the end of each day, just write down three things that they thought were mildly funny. It doesn't have to be ha-ha, just kind of aha, right? Like, oh, like that's interesting. Um, and then, you know, sort of over the night, they think about ways of, again, exaggerating it, like the White House is under control of a shirtless Viking, or, you know, rule of three, like create a simple list where the first two things lead you in one direction. Um, simply like, you know, for example, you know, um, how much, you know, the first two tweets, like I made bread or sure do miss my friends. And then the third thing um, creates that surprise um, or contrast, you know, juxtaposing journal entries at the start of the pandemic versus recently. Let me bring some callers on here. We've got lots of people who want to talk with you both. And Valina is first. Valina, good morning. You're on. Uh, good morning. Um, I live here in San Francisco with my family. Love the program. Uh, I just wanted to comment and say that my family were immigrated uh, from Iran through revolution. There, there was a time where there was war and then the whole immigration process of assimilating and uh, getting used to a new life. It's, it's been very challenging, but every day, I, every day I remember laughing and uh, finding humor and nothing is off the table. 
think it's been the one thing that's helped us navigate through all the difficulties in life. And from the outside, it looks as if we have a, a great life, but it's just we find the humor in everything. Nothing is sacred. So whenever tragedy happens, we don't dwell on the tragedy. We go straight for the humor just to lighten it. And then good, we move on. Good wisdom there, Valina. <laughs> I think you're approaching life in a, in a very thoughtful way. Thank you for that uh, and can help a great deal. In fact, here's Johan who writes, I love that you're talking about this right now. We're in a dark place with this pandemic and so much political divide. Laughter is so good for anyone. I'm 38 years old and I'm fortunate to have a good job, but life gets stressful. I do my best to make people laugh and also find humor where I can. Watching or listening to stand-up comedy will change your mood almost instantly. And Chris writes, it's been my experience that a self-deprecating sense of humor is greatly beneficial. It's aided me in my photography career as well as, as people do not typically want to be on the set for 10 plus hours with someone who does not possess a sense of humor. That gets right to an important point. Uh, Naomi Bogdanis, I'll go to you on this, and it's really at the heart of your class. In the workplace, particularly with managers and everything, humor is, an, again, an effective tool and a good weapon to have. Absolutely. And Chris brings up a great point about self-deprecation. And so self-deprecation is this really interesting form of humor that can work for you in some cases and can potentially work against you in other cases. So in the book, we have this whole array of um, how to be smart about using humor. How do you mitigate the risks of it? So self-deprecation, for example, we know that humor and laughter is inextricably tied to status. And so there's this concept in comedy, never punch down, which means that you never want to make fun of someone of lower status than yourself. Well, the same can be true of self-deprecation. So when you're junior in an organization, if you over-index on self-deprecation, it can actually take away your power in some way because people perceive that perhaps that self-deprecation is coming from a genuine place of lack of confidence or illuminating some things, some shortcomings that you really do have. Now, as you rise in status in an organization, there are fewer and fewer things to punch. Uh, you, you, everything is punching down, right? So your playing field narrows. So when you're more senior, what we find is that self-deprecation becomes an absolute superpower, that uh, it shows humility. Um, we, you know, it's humor is the antidote to arrogance. If you show that you have a sense of humor and in particular that you can make fun of yourself, then it actually in other people's eyes, it enhances your power and status. And it also cuts down a lot of the status barrier that make people uncomfortable or nervous talking to you. So, you know, to Chris's point with his photography, it cuts through some of the tension in that moment and allows people to relax, you know, be themselves a bit more. Talking to the authors of Humor Seriously, they say early on in their book, what if together we could blend the behavioral science of humor with the principles from comedy and apply them in a way that would actually be useful in business? Could this deepen relationships, make people more effective and joyful at work, and fundamentally transform companies, maybe even the world? It's a big mission that they have in front of them here, and we're talking about it, and we do want to hear from you. Let's hear from some more callers. We Go to Tom in San Anselmo. Tom, join us. Oh, hey, uh, thanks. Um, great subject, and I, I really appreciate it. I wanted to bring up something that an experience I had. I was lucky enough, I was at college in Ohio University in the 1980s, and they had a class by a guy named Mel Hellitzer who taught humor writing, and the final of the class um, was a stand-up comedy session that everybody in the class had to do. And I wanted to bring it up because I think it was another element that the uh, benefit of humor. Taking that class, doing stand-up, and going on to do some you know, kind of open mic nights, 
really helped me um, kind of overcome some fears in social situations and um, in public speaking. I think if you can get on stage and do a stand-up performance, there's just about nothing you can't do um, in front of a group of people. And I think it's really helped me as I've gone into a creative field where my job is to present ideas to people. Yeah, they didn't have classes like that when I was at Ohio, but um, one one night I went to the Holy City Zoo and did a stand-up routine, and it taught me an immense amount. You have to win over an audience, first of all, uh, and, and that's very important, but humor helps immensely to win over an audience. And let's go to another caller. Leslie joins us. Leslie, good morning. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. can hear you fine. Hi. Uh, this, uh, this talk just reminded me of something my dad uh, taught a class in the 90s that I think he invented at a community college in Oregon, and he called it Laughing Matters. And uh, part of the curriculum was that while he was teaching, he would just randomly throw uh, marshmallows at the students, which unfortunately <laughs> he, he died in the middle of the semester, but that is one thing that was mentioned at his memorial. And um, he also was a big fan of very long jokes that ended in horrible puns. And the punchline that I remember, I don't remember the joke, but it, it ended with, it was because he left his harp at Sam Clam Disco. How you ah. get there, I can't remember, but that was the punchline. Well, thank you for that, Leslie. Good to hear from you. And uh, looking at some comments coming in, Sally writes, I teach conscious dying and death midwifery training. I use humor a lot to help students relax and open their hearts to the topic. Humor and fear cannot coexist. The two emotions are biochemically incompatible. Does that square with your research? Uh, go to you, Professor Acker, on that. Yeah, I think that um, what we're what we're finding is that um, uh, that that does square the research. And I also wanted to bring up another point that the last couple of, of, of um, audience members brought up, which is this ability to, to do what we call this levity reframe, where you take the most, you know, sort of meaningful parts of our, our lives and be able to think about a way of, you know, infiltrating like a, a more humorous frame on it. So the way your last um, caller actually depicted um, the way her dad lived was really incredibly beautiful. Um, and, and I think that this idea of like, how do you actually take a story that is meaningful and be able to retell it in a very different way is aligned also with what we do our last day of class with our students. Um, we do give them this one minute task. So they go kind of go on stage and they share a, what we call a signature story about their life, which is defined as an intriguing, involving memorable and meaningful story. And these stories are about coming out or, or facing cancer or a death of a parent or an illness. Like these are very potentially dark um, stories that are very meaningful. And then through the, the eight weeks of the eight to 10 weeks of the classes, they work on this levity reframe, this one minute signature story, infusing it with humor and levity with these tools of secrets of comedians and leaders that use these tools. It's, it becomes the most incredibly meaningful, hilarious three hours that we have, you know, of, of the entire year. And Naomi and I sit there, you know, listening with our jaw dropped as these incredibly meaningful stories are shared with glimpses of humor and levity. And they're all just done through inspiring stories like, you know, the story we just heard, but also stories by these leaders like Secretary Madeleine Albright. Um, you know, we have 
um, Dick Costello, we have um, Sarah Blakely, Leslie Blodgett, all of these leaders who use humor strategically, thoughtfully, and you know, completely inspire the students. You also reminded me just now, Jennifer Hocker, of a little equation in your book, Comedy Equals Tragedy Plus Time. Yes, absolutely. Actually, um, one of our dear friends, mutual friend, Tina Sharkey, um, talks about that a lot. And, um, you know, this idea that that well, you know, that well rehearsed sort of adage, you know, helps explain um, why humor works and why it doesn't. Um, sometimes you you get too close to a joke or a, um, something that you're talking about. And and when time has not gone by, you know that oftentimes you have to step away from that humor. We talk a little bit about that in the book as well. Well, there's a lot in the book. In the book, again, uh, let me give the title of it once more. It's called Humor. Seriously, uh, there was a book by late friend of mine, Jerry Nachman, who many of you remember, regular columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle, called Seriously Funny about stand-up comics from... Uh, the era of Richard Pryor and all the greats. Uh, this is a book that uh, fuses uh, not only stand-up comedy, but really all of the comedy that can one can avail oneself of uh, in work and at home and can mean a great deal. It can lift a lot of the burden and is particularly, I think, important uh, during this time. We do want to hear from you. You can tell us about a time when humor helped you diffuse the situation or equalize a hierarchy at work, or how do you bring more laughs to work and life? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. The number again for your calls, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us, forum at kqed.org, and we will hear from more of you when we return. Just a tweet from Torino who says, My daughter was born with a degenerative disease. She also has a great sense of humor. She and I have faced illness and death with fear and laughter. Others may be shocked by our gallows humor, but it helps us to cope. More when we return. Stay tuned. I'm Michael Krasny. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. And we're talking about humor with uh, Jennifer Ocker, who is a professor of marketing at Stanford and comic and lecturer, Naomi Bagdanis. Uh, their new book is called Humor Seriously, and they'll be at the Commonwealth Club, the virtual event tonight at 6 p.m. Let me just read a couple of emails coming in. Vanessa writes, since we cannot be together and laugh at this time, my friends and I text comical anecdotes that occur during life apart and laughing in our own home simultaneously feels really nice. Laughter is the dessert of life. And another listener writes, um, I'll go to you on this, if I may, Naomi. Uh, can you speak about the role uh, of and solution to derisive humor, laughing at someone's expense? Mm. Yeah, this is often called blood laughter in comedy. So it's interesting, not all laughs are created equal. And we know, for example, that if you deliver a comedy set in San Francisco, that same comedy set is going to get a different reaction 
in uh, Houston, Texas, or in Nashville, Tennessee, or in New York. And so there, there's one thing to know, which is this concept of blood laughter. Now, we often, humor stems from truth. And so we often laugh at something because of the ridiculousness of the truth involved. Um, I, as a woman, could make jokes about being a woman that a man couldn't make, for example. Now, in an audience that is, um, that like agrees with that truth, you're going to get one type of laughter. When you start to get laughs where you're laughing, not at the ridiculousness of the thing, but laughing because perhaps you believe the stereotype or perhaps um, you, uh, you know, it's sort of a, a more, a deeper, more um, evil, if I'll say, type of laughter, that's where it starts to be dangerous because we know that humor not only reflects society, um, but it also can act to push our boundaries of what we believe is acceptable. So if you watch Saturday Night Live today versus Saturday Night Live 10 years ago, 10 years ago is going to feel pretty uncomfortable in some ways because we just, um, the things that people were laughing about then feel uncomfortable to laugh about now. And similarly, you have to watch out right now if you start making jokes and you hear this sort of blood laughter, which is laughter that says, that isn't laughing at the ridiculousness of something or sort of the uplifting nature of it, but is actually laughing because they believe that stereotype or they want um, those negative things to happen. That's where humor can, um, can actually be detrimental to us as a society. In fact, let me read a comment from a listener named Helene who said, humor is tricky. As a manager, I once said something funny and what I thought was harmless in a meeting. It apparently offended one person who reported me to HR. And we do hear a lot, uh, certainly comics, uh, you've heard this from, uh, well, I heard it on the air when I was interviewing John Cleese uh, of Monty Python, who said it. And I also heard it from Chris Rock and I've heard it from a number of uh, Paula Poundstone female comics who say uh, they, they, they can't use humor the way that they want to use humor because there's too much political correctness. Now, that's a term that's used uh, in ways that sometimes are very deceptive but uh, and, and don't re recognize uh, perhaps the reality uh, of people's sensitivity and vulnerability and all the rest of it. But you hear this as a common complaint, particularly from comics these days. Uh, there's the boundaries of humor I think we're talking about, and the caveat is necessary. Let me get another caller on, though. Martin joins us from Oakland. Martin, good morning. Good morning. Hi, I wanted to share an anecdote about my grandmother, whose name was uh, Zenta, and she was a woman who uh, lived through both world wars and a number of tragedies in her life. And the anecdote uh, was about 10 years ago when my father died. Uh, he had been ill for a while, and my brothers and I were holding vigil in the hospital. And when he passed away, uh, we knew, of course, that we had to go to my grandmother, who lived nearby, to give her the bad news that her son had passed, and we were dreading this. And when we walked into her room and we shared uh, with her the news, I was blown away, actually, by her reaction because she paused, she absorbed the information, and then she softly chuckled to herself and proceeded to share a funny anecdote about my father from when he was a little boy that made us all uh, laugh. And I was totally blown away how this woman who had just lost her son, was able to turn to humor right at that moment uh, to help us all get, you know, at least begin the process of getting through that event. And I think that is probably an example of why she managed to live 102 years. Uh, and I always think back to that and try to use that in my own life. So, a good story, uh, Martin, and I thank you for it. In fact, uh, Jennifer Auger, you, in your book, you talk about humor increasing longevity. 
Yeah, there's one um, study done in Norway. Not a country really known for its sense of humor. And I can say that because I'm Norwegian. Um, and, and what these researchers did was they just tracked people over the course of their life and said, you know, simple questions like, do you have a sense of humor? Again, not are you funny? Do you have a sense of humor? The individuals who said yes to that question lived on average eight years longer than those individuals that didn't. So this is a correlation-based study, but there's a lot of research on physical and mental health that actually supports why this is so. And in fact, in the same study, um, researchers found that these Norwegians, uh, these very humorous Norwegians, um, were 30% more resistant to severe disease and illness which um, again, I think underscores a lot of the themes that your, your audience are, are bringing up. The other thing I wanted to add is, um, you know, I know that this session's a little bit dark and it's not necessarily overly humorous and that's okay because we're living in a, a, a time right now where I think just talking about truth and then, you know, being open to that, you know, disruption or surprise or misdirection is, is good. So in the spirit of that, my mom has volunteered for hospice for 40 years. And so I grew up uh, with my two younger sisters, you know, listening to stories around the dinner table of what people wish for in their last days of life, um, because we're a fun family. And that's what we talk about. And I remember growing up being always so surprised that one theme that came through that was, you know, I wish I didn't take myself so seriously. I wish I allowed myself to laugh more. You know, it's, it's kind of a, consistent with that adage that instead of chasing happiness, just cultivating um, these moments for, for happiness. And you can do very serious things in the world, but not take yourself so seriously. So decoupling those two things. But what was also fascinating, because this had a huge impact on um, a lot of our research around behavioral work on, on meaning and how that's different than happiness is that humor ends up being this sort of secret weapon that mitigates the other four regrets that people often mention. One is boldness. People wish that they had taken more risks and they lived more boldly. And humor allows you to, you know, sort of move through negative emotions more seamlessly to take those bigger and bolder risks. The second is authenticity. People wish that they were more authentic and listen less to you know, what others had told them to do and what more what they knew they should do. And what we find is that humor, when you understand your own authentic humor style and also be able to better read the room and understand others, which increases your empathy, you live in ways that are more authentic. And the third is presence. I wish I just savored more and, you know, you know, really appreciated the small moments in life versus, you know, constantly looking forward. And what we find again with humor is that you're you're listening hard. You're you're waiting for that call back, you know, when someone else made someone laugh and you reference it again later in the meeting. You're you're listening for those moments, you're observing truths and it makes you more present. And the last is love. I wish I had the chance to say I love you one more time. Michael Lewis writes the afterword of our book with us, and he has this beautiful phrase at the end. He says, when humor exists, love is not far behind. So, um, yeah, we just we, I think that so many of your audience members, you know, brought up themes that that really resonate with that work. Yeah, nicely said. And um, your mother obviously was a hero doing volunteer work for hospice is extraordinary. And uh, hats off to her. Also, don't you write in the book uh, just quickly about uh, you being uh, assessed as the least funny in your own 
family? Yes, um, we take um, we take poles in our family, which again, like you know, it's in our DNA. We're just fun people, and so in one research <laughs> poll that I ran with my three kids, Cooper, Devin, and Taya Sloan, along with Andy, my husband, and dog Mackie. And I, you know, I, I said, like, who's the who's the funniest person in the family and who's the least funny? We were at the time having um, a home cooked meal, uh, which I like to call round table pizza. And it was in that moment where I, I said, you know, who's the least funny person in our family? Everyone was silent. They all looked down, tried to find vegetables to eat. And so when I offered, could I be the least funny person that can't be? <laughs> They all said, yes, you in fact are. And that includes our dog, Mackie. So it was that story five years ago that made me say, Naomi, will you please write a book around humor with me? Because something's got to change in our family. Well, and I now, hope you've made them. You have it. We have a book that launched today. Maybe they appreciate you more now that the book is out. By the way, we're talking with uh, the authors of Humor Seriously, which grew out of a class they taught at Stanford Business School that they teach at Stanford Business School. And let me read some more emails that are coming in. Kim writes, a while back, a friend of mine was diagnosed with leukemia. He was young in his early 30s and not the sentimental type. Instead of sending him sugary well wishes, I sent him an inappropriate cancer joke each day and that he was in clean room treatment. It was just the right thing to raise his spirits. And here's Wynn, regular caller, and actually took a course I taught at Stanford uh, from me. He says, I'm an unrepentant punster who was sent to a punitentiary for capital punishment. <laughs> you recognize punning in your view of humor? Well, they used to say the punning was the lowest form of humor, but let me go to some more of your calls. Ed is next. Ed, welcome. Yes. Hi, hi this is Ed uh, Girard. I'm calling from Geneva, Switzerland. And uh, anyway, I'm a, I've been a foreign correspondent for many, many years, previously for the Christian Science Monitor and so on. And I, I really agree with um, the, the author that, you know, I mean, humor is absolutely indispensable when you're covering wars and conflict situations, humanitarian crises. And I mean, one of the first bits of advice I got when covering Africa was if you want to get through and survive, try and get an African to smile or laugh within the first five minutes. So mm -hmm. that's exactly what I did. But the uh, one example, I was with um, a good friend of mine from BBC. We were covering uh, Mogadishu when it was really, really at a bad time. Uh, you know, a lot of people getting killed every day. And we were skirting the, outsk the outskirts of town in a borrowed UNICEF vehicle. And we were stopped by a group of about 30 men with guns. And one of them stuck his Kalashnikov straight at my head. I was driving. And uh, he said, we want money. And then my friend, uh, who has a very, very dry sense of humor, just leaned over and said, don't we all? And the guy was absolutely cracked up, translated to everyone else. They all burst out laughing and then said, go ahead, you know, you can go. And, of course, we got hijacked 10 minutes later again uh, by some very drug, you know, uh, stoned people. But anyway, that's just an example. I mean, you really need to have humor when you're covering these situations. It's, it's, it's a, the recipe for survival. Thank you for that. Uh, all the way from Geneva, appreciate your joining us with that, Ed, and thank you indeed. Uh, this is, by the way, a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED, simply go to kqed.org. I'm Michael Krasny. And we'll go back to more of your phone calls and more of your emails. Uh, let me, in fact, uh, go to some of the emails here. Kim writes, a while back, a friend of mine was, oh, I read this already, I'm sorry. This is, uh, we got a caller on the line here? 
Um, actually, let me go back to you, Naomi. We haven't talked to you in a while. Uh, Naomi Bagdanis was Oh, us. hello. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I don't mean to uh, try to do this uh, fairly always, but I wanted you to tell another story that's in your book, if you would. It's about somebody named Craig who was in a management role. And it's, again, a very enlightening and illuminating story. Sure. So I was early in my career. Um, I was working in what's called the Deloitte Greenhouse, which is the special forces team of strategy consultants, where we design and facilitate workshops for executives. So I had been asked to facilitate a team dynamics workshop for this team, most of whom were 15 to 20 years my senior, and most of whom were significantly more male than me as well. So one person in the room was a man named Craig. Now, Craig had been posturing all session. He was, you know, outwardly disengaged, somewhat skeptical, fingers laced behind his head in, you know, alpha male positioning. And, um, and what happened, you know, he was clearly the highest status person. What happened was I was in the middle of explaining this concept around how to tailor your communication to different personality styles when Craig cut me off mid-sentence. And he said sarcastically, Naomi, can you cut to the part where you just teach me how to make my team do what I want? And the room stiffened. The air left the room like you could hear a record screech in the other room. And all heads slowly swiveled from Craig to me to sort of say, okay, what's she going to do here? Well, without thinking, I shot back playfully. Great question, Craig. You're thinking of the workshop I run on mind control. That one's actually next week. So you should come back. That one's, you know, it's a lot of fun. Now, I did not mean to say this. I was doing, you know, improv comedy on the weekends, but I was really, really serious at work. So as soon as it came out of my mouth, I regretted it. I was pretty sure I had lost my job. And instead, the exact opposite happened, which is the room erupted in laughter. And even Craig, for the first time all day, cracked a smile. And he said, word for word, because I wrote it down, it was so profound. He said, I respect you. You can continue. So, you know, it was this moment. And, and not just in that moment, right? There was obviously a, a difference in Craig's energy, but the entire team followed suit. The room relaxed. People started chiming in more. Um, you know, the, the ideas flowed more freely. And I relaxed too. You know, I shifted from being nervous to feeling more present. And this is to the point that a, an earlier caller made of when you can start with humor, then everything shifts. When you can laugh yourself, when you can get other people laughing, then it feels like we're all on the same team. And uh, th this actually, this relates to Ed's story as well of, you know, don't we all want more money? Uh, there's this aspect of laughter is a fundamental melody of human conversation. It is universal and it's something, it's a, it's a tune that we all know how to sing along. There's this great Eva Hoffman quote, there's nothing like a gleam of humor to reassure you that a fellow human being is ticking inside a strange face. And so this idea that if we can just laugh together, if we can connect, then not only will we be more effective at work, you know, have higher status, unlock greater creativity, but also have more meaningful connections and be more resilient in the face of hard times. It's also just a, what they call the Q factor. Uh, humor gets people to like you uh, if you're funny. Uh, people like people who are funny, and that, I think, was in the Craig story in part. He got to like you, respect you. Mickey is our next caller. Mickey, join us, please. You're on the air. Hi. What a great program for this time that we're in. And I just want to 
I don't have a great story or anything, but I just want to say how important it is to have a sense of humor at work. And unfortunately, I lost my job due to COVID, but I had a coworker and we would just bust out laughing for just about the stupidest things. And that is the part that I miss most about working is having that release. I mean, we worked really hard and we, we really did a good job in our work, but just having those moments of looking at each other and for no real apparent reason, just laughing hysterically. I think it's so important to keep a sense of humor, especially now. And, you know, the whole Marjorie Taylor Greene thing, well, it, with the space lasers from, from space that started the California fires and the Jews are in charge of it. Well, we started sending around a, a, a meme of like, you know, from the history of the world of Mel Brooks and all the space lasers that the Jews were sending. You have to laugh. So it, 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 it just makes everything better, and it, especially during these times. Well, thank you, Mickey. Sometimes you have to laugh to keep from crying, though, too. But uh, appreciate those uh, thoughts from you and appreciate the f- thoughts that we got from our two authors, uh, Naomi Bagdanis and Jennifer Ocker. Thank you both for being with us and appreciate your time you've spent with us. Thank you for having us. And uh, to everybody out there, keep your sense of humor. Again, the book uh, is called Humor Seriously, and they'll be at the Commonwealth Club for a virtual event tonight at 6 p.m. Thank you for being with us for this hour of forum. And uh, remember, this is a time not only to be funny and to appreciate humor and to get levity, but also to stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.